Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm John Moscow of the A Correction Podcast team. I'm speaking today with Dr. Alberto Toscano. Alberto Toscano teaches at the School of Communications, Simon Fraser University, and co-directs the Center for Philosophy and Critical Theory at Goldsmiths, University of London. Lev interviewed him on A Correction in December 2022, about the 100th anniversary of Mussolini's March on Rome and the meaning of fascism today. He recently wrote a blog post on Verso called The War on Gaza and Israel's Fascism Debate. Welcome, Alberto. Thank you for having me. You write that fascism is embedded in Israel's colonial project. Could you define fascism in the Israeli context? Well, to begin with, um, I wanted maybe to preface uh, that by saying that what led me to the discussion of fascism in Israel was not just the ongoing um, onslaught and war on Gaza and the debates that had arisen around it, but the recognition even before October 7th and uh, what followed that Israel was one of the sites recently of the more explicit or open political debate about the question of fascism. Um, in a sense, on a on a par, you could say, with uh, the explosion of discussion of fascism in the wake or in the on the eve and the wake of the election of Trump and uh, discussions of that sort that have arisen in various contexts around the world, Brazil, France, Italy, and so on. And so my first interest, again, uh, before uh, the this war, was in trying to think through what that um, discussion of um, fascism uh, could tell us about a broader global concern with this term. So it was, in, in some sense, a little bit self-interested. I was working on a on a book uh, which has now come out called Late Fascism, trying to theorize and track this resurgence of discourse on and practices of authoritarianism. And so I felt um, that this was one kind of scenario or one element in the discussion that needed attending to. So I, in some sense, I had been reading of course, not having uh, Hebrew, only the uh, English language, uh, um, Israeli press, specifically Haaretz, where much of this debate was taking place in the context of the protests over the um, uh, so-called judicial reforms or the curbing of the power of the Supreme Court by Netanyahu's government. And of course, also all the debates about the composition of this particularly far-right, you know, um, Jewish supremacist, uh, settler-oriented uh, uh, government. So my uh, position was more to think through, well, how are, let's say, in the context of Haaretz, uh, liberal, broadly speaking, uh, Israelis, and generally liberal Zionist uh, Israelis, um, returning to or dealing with this question of fascism. So I suppose the first realization or the first acknowledgement was that um, there was a real, um, let's say, um, freedom verging on abandon in terms of 
the use of the term, right? So, you know, I work in an Anglophone academic context where a lot of universities are trying to, uh, or some administrators and some universities are trying to pass the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition of anti-Semitism, which has led to a lot of debates. One of the aspects of that uh, definition uh, and rather the examples appended to that definition more or less um, uh, directs uh, um, attention to the idea that analogies between the state of Israel, its government, its activities, and fascism or, or Nazism are a major sign, right, of uh, potential anti-Semitism. And one of the things that's striking, you know, just do a search on the pages of Haaretz, is with what ease <laughs> many commentators were referring to government ministers, to government practices, to the settler movement, to religious Zionism as fascist without much, um, uh, you know, much caution, so to speak, but also how for a number of years, um, internal critics and, you know, often again, kind of like liberal Zionist critics of Israel have also um, made analogies, uh, not just with fascism generically, but with Nazism and with Nazi activities and Nazi policies, again, in the Israeli press, saying things for which you might be suspended from your job in uh, in an American or Australian or British uh, university, right? So that's the, that was my kind of first starting point. And so within that uh, debate, at least that's my impression, the definitions of fascism being operated with were relatively straightforward or commonsensical, right? Kind of definitions of fascism with which, you know, we might uh, operate in a sort of everyday language, uh, the way fascism is broadly understood as, first of all, being identified in some sense, more with Nazi Germany than with fascist Italy, which is something we could talk about. But in any case, with the um, rise of interwar so-called totalitarian dictatorships in Europe, and of course, with the violence, including the genocide of violence of World War II, right? And, and then broadly, fascism, yes, identified with the a state that eliminates uh, civic freedoms, that engages in explicit practices of domination, that advances and broadcasts uh, ideology of ethnic or racial or national domination and so on and so forth, right? So there was nothing, nothing in that debate that was advancing kind of novel or original or heterodox definitions of fascism, right? And so the my first response to it was to think, well, okay, what, what, how does, how is this analogy operating? And then perhaps what are the limits of that analogy, right? And one of the things that becomes evident, and that's what I tried to foreground in the uh, blog post for Verso, and then I wrote a longer version for an electronic book that Ber Verso put out, I think about a month ago, called From the River to the Sea Essays for Free Palestine. There's a longer version, um, Israel fascism and the war against the Palestinian people, which has a, it's that that blog post plus a kind of second second part where I expand a little bit on on that debate. Uh, and what I wanted to foreground was 
yeah, the limits of that analogy, because, of course, if you look through the pages of Haaretz, and if you attend to the debates, at least in English as I could, around the protests that took place in the context of the effort to uh, curb the powers of the Supreme Court and, and the rise of this more recent Netanyahu government, fascism was treated as exceptional, right? Fascism was treated as, as a menace, as an imminent, clear and present danger, but then nevertheless presented a rupture, right? A break with a status quo within the Israeli state. And one of the things that becomes glaring if one tries to exit a purely intra-Zionist and intra Jewish-Israeli elite or even liberal debate um, was, you know, how much the the discussion of fascism and of its exceptionality depended on entirely bracketing the occupation, settler colonialism, and the history of the domination and oppression of Palestinians in historic Palestine, um, and that actually this exception was really not necessarily that exceptional for the people most affected by the power governing between the river and the sea, so to speak, right? Um, the power uh, which has effective uh, sovereignty and control over that area. And so that was what, one of the things that I kind of wanted to bring out. And um, in many ways, this has a longer history, right? Because... Um, the debate on fascism in within Israel, and, and I guess within also, uh, you know, Zionist or uh, opinion in uh, uh, outside of Israel, um, that debate on fascism didn't just start in 2022, right? It's something that has accompanied um, the the history and the formation of the state of Israel and its policies. Uh, I, and many people have pointed this out, um, uh, mention a very famous, uh, now at least famous, uh, letter co-signed by Hannah Arendt, and I think written by Hannah Arendt, but also co-signed by Albert Einstein and Sidney Hook, if I'm not mistaken, and, and others uh, responding in 48 uh, to the action and ideology of the forerunner of the Likud party, Harut, um, explicitly referred to as a as a fascist formation, right? It's a kind of form of Jewish fascism. And, and then you have other rounds of this debate, and uh, most intensely, I suppose, in the wake of the rise of Likud to power, so with the uh, begin government in, in in 77, and then there's a whole other you know debate again on the on the Jewish uh, Israeli Jewish left and and amongst so-called liberal Zionists, which, who again are presenting this as kind of kind of exceptional, right? And at that moment, you also have an internal critique from a very small but very interesting and significant anti-Zionist Israeli Jewish left, namely the uh, uh, Matzpan, the socialist organization in, in uh, Israel. Um, and I, I think I, I quote from... One of their authors in the longer piece, Avishai Ehrlich, who in fact is still writing about, about fascism uh, in Israel now, um, who in 78 uh, questions the discussion of fascism or the response to um, 
Menachem Begin's government as, as, as fascist because he disputes the exceptionality, right? Or he wants to argue that that the sense of an exception really serves to um, whitewash or, or or excuse the continuity of violence and the, and and obfuscates the specificity of um, ethno national domination and the occupation, treating the moment of fascism as something that kind of, by contrast and retroactively treats the the status quo is somehow liberal, somehow normal, and somehow devoid of, of, of violence, right? And he makes a further point, which I think is interesting also in the current context. I mean, after all, we're speaking today uh, on, on, on the, uh, in the middle of the International Court of Justice uh, uh, um, hearing um, uh, brought by South Africa uh, for... Uh, uh, crimes of genocide against uh, against Israel, so not not an insignificant moment to have uh, this discussion. But one of the things that Ehrlich already makes, uh, the point he already makes in the in the late seventies, is that there's a limit. There's a limit to um, the movement of Israel out of this ethno-nationalist, liberal democratic framework and, and this, this kind of uh, hybrid regime, so to speak, which is its utter dependency, um, financial, ideological, geopolitical on the United States. And he argues at the time, and you know, this is an open question now, but he argues at the time that, that uh, it's not possible for Israel, given its dependency, to um exit the formal um uh space let's say of liberal democracy however um you know uh, utterly uh partial and and uh, uh limited uh, uh, um, to to Jews alone right uh, without uh, uh really undoing its own kind of exceptional geopolitical economic uh, role in relationship to the U.S. and U.S. imperialism and so on and so forth. So I think that's also an interesting aspect of this uh, of this issue, right? To think, um, to think, you know, what what is fascism naming, right? That's why I kind of, you know, there's a long detour to say that it's not that I want to start from a definition of fascism. I was more interested in thinking, well, how does this discourse of fascism operate with certain political effects, for instance, trying to develop what is basically a Jew Jewish-only coalition against the uh, Netanyahu government and its uh, uh, judicial reforms, treating it as exceptional and as a threat to a Jewish uh, status quo, right? Uh, and, 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 and after all, if one saw those demonstrations, it was you know, a, lot of, a lot of Israeli flags, right? And, you have demonstrations only with national flags, especially in a situation of settler colonialism, you sort of, that gives you a sense of what the ideological parameters are. And of course, there are many stories about the the exclusion of, of, of course, of uh, um, Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel and, and indeed of anti-Zionists of, of, of any kind from these demonstrations. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's the kind of context, you know, how is, how is fascism operating? And then if we uh, shift if we displace 
uh, these terms and treated not as exceptional, then then what might emerge from that, right? And then, of course, if we turn to, um, and again, I don't do enough of this partly because as well as not having Hebrew, I don't have Arabic. <laughs> but if we turn to the you know accessible English or for me also kind of French language uh, uh, materials published in the 70s and 80s by um, Palestinian intellectuals or radical and revolutionary groups, etc. We also see, you know, operative, uh, a discourse uh, of uh, fascism trying to identify within uh, the practices and realities of uh, Zionism, these, you know, forms of, you know, ethno-national supremacy, glorification of violence, militarization, etc., that we might associate with fascism more broadly, but of course, which are taking place in uh, a polity that for its uh, Jewish population is, of course, uh, uh, not just, um, you know, explicitly constructed against the history of fascism and its genocidal effects on the Jewish people, but is also perceives of itself for a long period of time, certainly, you know, until the 70s, as having elements of, you know, socialism, not even just liberalism, right? So, so that, of course, uh, is where the, the, the discourse of fascism always has this kind of polemical dimension, right? It has a polemical dimension within um, the uh, Israeli-Jewish uh, debate to treat this, for instance, now to treat this Netanyahu, Smotrich, Ben Gavir government as kind of an exceptional threat to uh, Israeli democracy, Jewish-Israeli democracy. And then on the other hand, of course, it's it's had a, a critical role for um, some Palestinians, intellectuals, and movements to reveal what appears to, you know, much of the West and certainly the United States as this, you know, kind of exemplary liberal democracy in the Middle East, et cetera, as actually replicating uh, or including within itself the elements of what elsewhere we might perceive as fascism. So there are obviously lots of strands in, in what you've just said that we should pursue. I wanted to ask specifically that, um, you know, fascism, you know, has generally an economic component to it uh, as well as totalitarian or authoritarian uh, aspects. Um, and you talk about in the Israeli case of it being, um, you know, firmly anchored in business interests um, and legislative maneuvers of billionaires, um, you know, who are happy to combine national conservative mobilizations uh, against decadent metropolitan elites with, you know, the ruthless defense of profit and privilege. Um, and you specifically mentioned um, a thing called the uh, Kohelet uh, Policy Forum. Can you talk some about uh, the economic aspects of what you're of what you're seeing? Yes. So I I suppose um, one of the elements of this um, debate on fascism within um, liberal and, and and liberal Zionist. Uh, uh, domains in Israel that I thought was significant was, as you know, the the attention to um, the economic rationale, but also the economic backing, so to speak, of 
these far right um, movements and especially this kind of settler fascist and religious Zionist uh, kind of wing, right? Um, and one of the things that is significant about this, I think, and I don't talk that much in the piece, but I think would warrant further uh, discussion, is the role that Israel as a kind of laboratory of sorts, not entirely, but relatedly to the way that Anthony Lovenstein talks about it in terms of the Palestine laboratory in a military sense, but the way that it has been functioning also as a kind of laboratory of um, 21st century model of authoritarianism, right? So you can think, for instance, of the, the key role that um, Israeli intellectuals and foundations play in what is now an international um, uh, movement of, of national conservatism, right? These conferences um, attended by um, much of the right wing of the UK government, uh, Hungarian uh, uh, intellectuals and elites, um, you know, the likes of Josh Hawley and et cetera in the United States. Um, which is, um, uh, you know, which has a, a central, um, uh, is, is centrally organized by this Edmund Burke Society, which is itself uh, uh, very strongly um, uh, linked to Israeli think tanks and so on and so forth, right? Who explicitly present uh, a kind of ethno-religious, illiberal democracy to use the, the sort of um, Orban, kind of model um, as um, one of the great virtues of contemporary Israel, right? So um, seeing it as a, yeah, as a, as a model of, of illiberalism and as a way of combining a, um, uh, a kind of untrammeled, um, you know, free market capitalist, uh, scenario with uh, uh, socially conservative and indeed religiously conservative uh, framework, right? Uh, and as a way also to, to combine a kind of hyper-capitalism also with a nationalist framework, right? So I think there's, there's a way in which um, this almost federation <laughs> of uh, uh, thin think tanks and um, uh, very, uh, you know, uh, very well-funded, uh, uh, yeah, think tanks and business interests, etc., that are linked to an international um, uh, movement for the advancement of these nationalist conservative ideas, which, of course, at its fringes has figures that I think one could you know, easily see as, as fascist or potentially. So I think that's quite significant. So I haven't myself, you know, looked into uh, in any detail the operations of the Kohelet Policy Forum, but it was one of the, um, it's it was emphasized by this Israeli historian of the Holocaust, Daniel Blattman, who, you know, makes a, a kind of compelling uh, argument for the way in which the the fascization, so to speak, right of of Israeli society would be would be perfectly compatible with an intensification or prolongation of its you know capitalist social relations, right? So I think they quote 
it says something uh, I have it, I think, in front of me. It says, um, you know, you say fascism to people and they picture soldiers cruising the streets. No, it won't look like that. Capitalism will still be extant. People will still be able to go abroad. There will be good restaurants. But a person's ability to feel that there is something protecting him other than the regime's goodwill will no longer be there, right? And of course, one of the things that I point out because it's kind of screamingly obvious, but maybe it has to be pointed out, is that Blattman writes this passage as though Palestinians uh, occupied or second-class citizens of the state of Israel don't exist, right? Because, of course, for them, the soldiers are cruising the streets and the freedoms aren't present, right? And that's one of the things I also wanted to stress in the article, because I think it's also significant to a broader discussion of fascism is that when we talk about fascism, we always need to make explicit to ourselves and to others what perspective, right, are we analyzing fascism from, right? And that's one of the lessons, I think, of the anti-colonial and black radical uh, traditions discussion of fascism is the, the lived realization that, of course, many of the things that liberal political science or political theory identifies as fascists are totally quotidian for subaltern minoritized and racialized people in otherwise seemingly liberal societies right you could say that in 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 a way uh israel has provided an extreme version right of of something that is also latent or present in in other so-called liberal democratic Polities, right? Oh, and and of course, you know, not that far back in history was explicitly present in you know the Jim Crow South in the U.S. or indeed in in apartheid conditions in South Africa. Right? Do you see any prospect, and especially in the changed context since October seventh, that the um, forces, the people who were uh, in the streets um, opposing the, the judicial reform. Um, do you see, what do you see as the chances that they're uh, going to be able to take that next leap and uh, and see the issues um, with Palestinians uh, as, as integral to all of this, as opposed to it being strictly an intra-Jewish-Israeli struggle? Yeah, I fear none. And that's a that's a grim thing to say, but um, my uh, my sense and you know various um, polls and discussions in Israel uh, amongst Israeli Jews seem to bear this out um, is that this has only, I guess, suppose predictably, right, exacerbated this uh situation and and i think the you know while uh you know courageous and principled and so on the the actual this the the real opposition to you know these uh genocidal policies policies to the continuation of, of an intensification of the dispossession of of the West Bank, as well as the, um, you know, uh, curtailing of any kind of freedoms from um, Palestinian citizens of Israel as well. All of this is, you know, being um, uh, opposed only by a exiguous, you know, minority 
of uh, you know i think the polls that you know i think in the category of the polls like you know do you think you know israel's uh, uh war on gaza is excessive or something like that which is in, in any case that's not even like a sign of an opposition to zionism or settler communism right but it's like three percent of the you know so we're not we're not talking about especially now about a, a politically significant right you could say it's like of course the the moral and political witnessing and the presence even of the tiniest group is always is always worth um worth uh foregrounding in some sense right but i don't think there's any there's any uh opening or 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 hope i think in this moment for any um internal kind of political uh, critique of any sort right it's quite likely you know that or kind of inevitable i suppose that uh that at some point or another netanyahu himself will be turfed out but if he'll be turfed out is is not because of what he's doing to palestinians it'll be for what how he failed to defend jewish citizens of israel or proceed to to and and i i don't get the sense that the far right elements um I mean, you could say they're all far-right elements to the extent that they're all very openly participating in a you know genocidal war and making all the statements that go along with it. But you know, the 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 groups that within Israeli discussion are identified um as as having fascistic traits, that is to say, the Smotriches and Ben Gaviers, etc., I doesn't seem to me are going to suffer any um you know effects from this and that's a that's a pretty frightening uh prospect i think i just read this interview and it may have been in Haaretz, and you may have seen it um with the former uh shin bet chief uh, ami ayalan i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name mm -hmm. but he was saying that we meaning israelis we've turned war into an end in itself and he uh saying and quoting that the the cabinet's decision not to discuss quotes the day after turns the war into a military conflict with no diplomatic objective. Uh, this is a situation in which it's impossible to define victory. And then he says that wars are the only time Israelis aren't fighting one another. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that he was um, going on to basically say, I think he actually uh was was recommending that uh, they needed to, um, you know, not only you know deal with the Palestinians, but to release the prisoners and to recognize somebody like you know Marwan Barghouti mm -hmm. as as a leader um, of the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you if you saw the interview or if you I, I, I don't. I'm not sure I read that interview, but I've I've uh, read other. Um statements or, or declarations by retired um statesmen and 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 elders of the security and intelligence services of of israel alas i think it's a very you know it's a very common phenomenon not present solely in israel of 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 people who are like ehud olmert responsible for extremely um uh brutal uh wars of their own though of course not uh, on, on the scale of what is going on now 
having uh, enlightened or or or, or progressive uh, or self-critical opinions, you know, uh, uh, long after they've exited. Uh, once they're retired. Once they've retired, once they've exited uh, so-called public service, right? Um, but I think that point about uh, about about permanent war as not just a a form of rule, which of course a, an occupation is, you know that 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 is what an occupation is, even when um, you're not necessarily engaging in in uh, you know uh, bombing and 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 shooting, even though of course Israel has been doing that with with extreme regularity, even when a war is not declared. But nevertheless, right, like that. I think the military occupation and the military occupation within the long uh, duration and, and, and project of a, of a settler colonialism that's always maintained, right? And that's, I think, the important part that's always maintained. Um, the prospect and the horizon and for some the explicit wish of the expulsion of the Palestinian population from the land of so-called Eretz Israel. I think that together um, has a relationship, a very close relationship to the specific forms of what we could call a kind of fascization within the context of Israel, right? You could say, of course, that in, in, in many of its forms, um, fascism has a profound relationship to this idea of permanent war, right? To this idea of, of militarism and militarization, even as a kind of subjective or psychic, you could even say kind of libidinal formation, right? And one of the things that I, I see as uh, often underestimated, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, in the history of fascism is the extent to which Fascism depends on a logic of violence which has a great affinity and is linked to histories of settler colonialism, including, of course, in North America, which is that of the deputization or delegation of violence, right? The fact that we, we uh, have a truncated vision of fascism, if we think of it solely in the mode of this vertically integrated, seamless, totalitarian, bureaucratic state where all decisions come from the center and, uh, you know, soldiers and functionaries, etc., are just kind of, you know, mindless minions of some, you know, Ducher or or other, right? And I think that doesn't actually um, do uh, empirical justice to the actual history, including of uh, Italian fascism and, and, and German Nazism, or to the broader potentialities for fascism in our own societies. And one of the things that I think is particularly striking and also explains these formations like um, the groups and parties that Smotrich and, and, and Ben Gavir were linked to is precisely the ways in which as a settler colonial project, the Israeli state has always given uh, 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 you know, not not unequivocally, perhaps, but has always given a remarkable level of uh, delegation of violence to settlers themselves, right? To uh, you know, allow so-called illegal settlements to operate and then legalize them and bring them into the uh, juridical structures of the state of Israel. To, so to use uh, forms of violence that are not, you know, 
formally internal to the state as ways of disciplining and dispossessing and dominating Palestinians as well, right? Of course, now you see uh, an ex you know like a, an acceleration of this in all sorts of ways. You know whether it's Ben Gavir giving AR-15s or AK-47s or whatever you know, uh, uh, semi-automatic weapons it was to, to settlers or the fact that, you know, people keep there, you know, this is happening a lot in the West Bank, right? Like where, where uh, settlers who serve in the army, even when they're not in the army, just keep their uniforms on when they're, when they're expelling Palestinians from their homes and their land, right? So that fusion and that delegation and that blurring of a supposed monopoly of violence, I think is significant. I think it's also frightening and significant that you're seeing in this, you know, also with the uh, rather perverse possibilities of modern technology, you are seeing people like, you know, you're seeing soldiers just broadcasting and filming themselves engaging in, you know, acts of violence and, you know, desecration or, or kind of vulgar uh, uh, play in this context of this of this uh, you know brutal uh, war and ethnic cleansing, uh, so all of that like I think that um, is something that is is definitely um, an an element at any discussion of the realities and potentials for a kind of fascization in Israel would need to take place. And you know, there is of course also uh, important historical work that's been done on this, including by the uh, critical Israeli sociologist Baruch Kimmerling, who wrote about you know patterns of militarism in Israel, you know, a long time ago, and 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 thought through right what does it mean that the state of permanent war, you know, that the conscription of not just uh, Israeli citizens, incidentally, right, but like you know reservists of other nationalities flying in, which is a whole other you know phenomenon worthy of thinking about. Now, a coda to that, maybe just to to finish, is that of course. That, uh, you know, maybe thinking through this um, can can be also be done, right, without without operating with the language or, or discourse of fascism, right? And so I'm kind of conscious, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious about this because I do see the virtue of arguments made by, you know, Avishai Ehrlich in the, in, in the late 70s, more recently, Cy Englert, uh, who have argued that, you know, there's a, there's a real danger in bringing the question of fascism to bear on the uh, violence of the Israeli state uh, now and in the past, because it treats that as exceptional, right? And so like, can we use, you know, I guess that's a question, which I think is an open question for me, you know, can we use the analytic and the, you know, terminology of fascism without implicitly arguing that if we're, if we're calling Ben Gavir a fascist, it means that, you know, the ones who came before him were, you know, liberals or, or Democrats or that or that he isn't working on top of a structure of violence that operates regardless of whether, you know, of course, with different degrees of violence, but regardless of whether the people involved are ideologically right or like subjectively sort of fascist. And I think that's one of the things that I really wanted to point out that there's a there's an underlying logic of violence and domination and dispossession and also uh, a permanent potential, you know, for the kind of violence of ethnic cleansing and genocide, et cetera, that's written into, right? Like uh, um, 
a, a kind of settler colonial project. Of course, it does matter, right? Like, I think it does matter. Uh, it's not insignificant that the people at the helm of the Israeli state now have thrown off all, you know, um, uh, you know, all, all forms of internal censorship and are, are really saying the, the quiet part very loud. But I think it's important that it was the quiet part, right? Like, it's important that, that, you know, transfer and expulsion and extreme violence against Palestinians has just been part of Israeli policy as well as discourse for a long time. Um, and that has also, I think, made possible, of course, this this uh, seemingly rather seamless transition to a very, uh, you know, explicitly and 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 kind of shockingly uh, um, overt, right? Um, celebration of 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 violence uh, and and of of exterminatory violence against uh, civilians in the discourse of you know ministers and uh, and prominent politicians. Um, but I, but it, but it's precisely like thinking of something as, you know, I think you can think of something as a you know as passing certain significant thresholds. Uh, you can think of the the extremity or the or, or the novelty without thinking of it as an exception, right? So I think so, and and that you know that's why I think some of the discourse, you know, whether it's people who talk about fascization or someone like Angela Davis talking about fascism as a process. Uh, rather than um, as a shift into something entirely different, right? Like, so if we think of it in that latter sense, I think it's a very unhelpful way of thinking about it. But I think uh, if we th if we think more of, you know, elements of or processes uh, or logics um, of, uh, of, of fascism or fascization, I think that can be uh, a useful optic to think about what's what's happening now. So I want to pick up on um, a couple of things that you were mentioning earlier in the context of everything now being very overt and explicit mm -hmm. threshold, having been sort of blown away, mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of the United States, Canada, Britain, um, that you, you were mentioning, you know, that there was the argument that they had to maintain below a certain threshold in order to keep the relationship and the support um, of, of the West. Um, and of course, in the case of Israel, there was also, you know, the, the history of, of the Holocaust, the Shoah, that, you know, created this kind of patina um, of, of, you know, sacrosanctness or whatever um, around Israel. So now that that's sort of been blown, um, and at the same time that you're having large, you know, large levels of opposition um, arising in the United States, including among, you know, many Jews, um, especially younger Jews, but not, ex not exclusively younger Jews. Uh, some are even 75 years old. Um, what do you think, um, you know, at the same time that you have the use of like the IRA definition uh, to try to, you know, really heavily uh, control any kind of criticism of Israel and claim that it's all anti-Semitism or self-hating Jews or combination. Um, what do you see happening uh, in terms of those relationships? Uh, do you think that 
that there is at some point soon going to be a recognition um, of, as you point out, that it's been there at levels all the time, but now that it's become you know, very, very explicit, um, what kind of changes does this presage? I think in, it seems to me in the United States in particular, where of course the situation is very specific for a whole number of uh, reasons, but also elsewhere, I do think this is a kind of ideological, institutional, discursive point of no return of sorts. Um, maybe I hope it is. Um, I think um, for many people, especially, but as you say, not only young people, the obscenity of um, continuing to repress Palestinian solidarity on these you know, spurious and invidious grounds just uh, is is you know too too much to 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 bear. I also think um, the you know the quotidian spectacle of um, of the you know kind of mealy mouth hypocrisy or just sheer obfuscation and lying on the part of. Uh, these supposed liberal administrations, um, you know, side by side, right, with, you know, the daily, not just the daily carnage, but the daily affirmation of that carnage by the Israeli state that is being supported by the US and the UK and the European Union, Australia, and so on and so forth. Um, all of that is definitely having quite important consequences and I think also serving you know potentially also with electoral consequences in the states to to fairly radically delegitimize among certain people and certain uh, movements of people these um, these governments I think um I think that crossing of thresholds so to speak on the on the part of um of Israeli state and government, officials uh, is having very significant consequences and efforts to cover that are now you know completely threadbare right so if you see you know i think it was yesterday or something there was some you know statement by you know netanyahu this is kind of tr just trying to uh do firefighting at the last minute vis-a-vis -vis the ICJ case, right? Saying, no, of course, we're not targeting civilians. You know, this stuff is just absurd, right? Like, it, it doesn't even bear bear mentioning. And there's something deeply, um, like, bo both morally repugnant, but also kind of ridiculous about these press conferences by Kirby and Blinken, etc., where they just keep, you know, the mantra continues, you know, of, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping that Israel will limit civilian casualties and it's like well clearly they're wanting civilian casualties and they're saying they're wanting civilian you know so all of that is having those effects and i think that um the the inability the unwillingness not the inability to engage even in the most um cosmetic forms of um um, diplomatic disciplining of 
Israel by the U.S. and European powers is uh, is really significant. It's symbolically very significant, and is having uh, um, you know, and, and and you know, and it's not insignificant either. In fact, it's really important that this uh, case of the ICJ is being brought by South Africa, and that you have countries, including Brazil and Chile. Uh, and and others really uh, the colombian president has been extremely important in this regard uh really breaking with uh this um vacuous idea right of kind of you know us liberal moral leadership etc so that which of course has been punctured and eroded and was uh, uh uh you know dubious from the very start but nevertheless i think there's there's been a real um a real uh, collapse of legitimacy, which interestingly, I think it, you you might say is is perhaps even more consequential than um, which is an odd thing to say, perhaps because it's less direct responsibility. But in some senses, I think even more consequential than um, than the effects of of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars because of the moment that we're we're we're, we're now in. One of the uh, so recently, just like past uh, past few days, I was uh, reading an excellent book uh, that Verso. Uh, it's an old book by an Israeli journalist, Amnon Kapaliuk, on the seventy three war, the Yom Kippur Ramadan War of seventy three. And one, aside from the repetition of a whole set of you know myths about Israel and 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 historical patterns and so on and so forth. The fact that, of course, the attack took place the day after the 50th anniversary of, of the attack in the in 73, and that both were aimed at breaking this kind of normalized status quo in some sense. And so there's many parallels. But one of the things that's really striking, of course, and worth thinking about is the way in which the U.S. Um, did at that time, you know, in situations where Israel wasn't carrying out you know, massive violence against civilians as such, right? It was engaging in a more conventional war with uh, Egypt and Syria, et cetera. But the U.S. Uh, was able to um, quite rapidly uh, uh, discipline, curb, and act upon Israel, right? And one of the reasons, though, of course, it was able to do that was that that war <laughs> took place in the context of the Cold War. And it took place in a context where U.S. behavior and, and U.S. strategy was, of course, having to take into account, right, the Soviet Union's arming and relationship of Egypt, the possibility of, you know, conflict between superpowers, etc., which, you know, you could argue made the United States and its, uh, its government not by any means more moral or or anything like that but just more intelligent right or more strategic and i think one of the things that i find um uh kind of staggering in this moment is not just the you know the the commitment to zionism at all costs by the likes of biden regardless of the violence taking place but is actually the the uh yeah, just the the complete collapse of any kind of strategic or kind of geopolitical intelligence. You know, it's it's like they're they're all in, 
And as we can see on a daily basis, it literally does not matter what Israel does. There is no, there doesn't seem to be any threshold of violence or brutality from, you know, explicitly starving the population of Gaza to, you know, openly targeting journalists and doctors and intellectuals and destroying every single, there's nothing that, um, that leads to any consequential action by the United States other than the, you know, we are voicing concerns or some ridiculous uh, statement of the sort, right? And instead, you know, like if you see historically, you know, figures who on some level m might seem to be you know, much less liberal and much less progressive than Biden, you know, Kissinger, Reagan, Bush Sr. were all in situations that had none of the, you know, extreme gravity to civilian life and, you know, the, uh, uh, that we're seeing now were, were able to, you know, act pretty quickly, you know, of course, in the context of, you know, massively supporting Zionism and etc., making all of this possible, right? But the fact that, you know, just out of self-interest and, you know, geopolitical strategy, that there were red lines, right? Or there were moments where, where some pressure was born. And the fact that none is being exerted in a situation of, of such exceptionally brutal, you know, violence against civilians with also, like, potentially incalculable, you know, consequences for the years to come, right? I mean, you know, that's not, we haven't even started to think about because, because it's still going on. And so obviously that's where the attention is, but, you know, in terms of the region, in terms of everything else, right? And so I think that to me is uh, is a pretty uh, significant and kind of bewildering phenomenon as well, right? This, uh, this commitment to, uh, and the fact that it's taking place, right? With this, um Israeli government that as you know its own internal critics say it's basically like the most openly fascistic in its like discourse and in its ideology uh um uh government possibly of any country around the world right where where you know where you have ministers saying things that you know you would not go amiss in the in the history of self-described fact or in including Ministers who have been fine with people calling them, like in the case of Smotrich, you know, saying, yes, sure, I'm a fascist homophobe. So what? You know, like this kind of thing. Right. And so that taking place in the context where, of course, centrist Democrat liberals who are also invested in the continuation of Zionism and all, at all costs are also trying to say, you know, Trump is a threat to fascism in the United States does create this, you know, real ideological short circuit. Right. And the fact that it's happening in basically a kind of election year as well has a, you know, has this very, yeah, very turbulent kind of effect that I think a lot of people are also um, recognizing. And I don't, yeah, I don't know what the the consequences of um, of such a, yeah, such an extreme vacuum of like moral and political legitimacy, as well as of like any discernible strategic horizon will be. So sort of a final question, which follows somewhat from what you were just saying, as well as what we were talking about earlier. Why, what are some of your thoughts on why 
the parameters of discussion, uh, certainly in the United States, um, are so much narrower, uh, even in the use of the word fascism, uh, than even in Israel. Um, why, um, you know, the and and not just coming from, uh, you know, the failure, the de deliberate failure of of the administration, you know, to actually say or do anything uh, to constrain what's going on, but just the, um, you know, the huge repression repression uh, of of efforts even to call for a ceasefire, you know, not to even talk you know, about the West Bank, to talk about military aid to Israel, uh, to talk about the right of return, you know, not getting into any of those kind of more fundamental issues, but just talking about a ceasefire. Um, obviously, um, I mean, I'm in New Jersey and in the New York metropolitan area, and obviously, you know, in centers where the organized legacy Jewish community has, mm -hmm. things, you know, it's pretty clear why that's happening. But why do you think that it's um, happening on such a broad scale? And I'm just curious because um, I know that you're, you know, both um, you know involved in in, in Vancouver, uh, in, in British Columbia, and also uh, in Britain. Uh, are you, do you see the same kind of um, pressures there as well? I think the pressures are present uh, for a whole number of reasons: historical, intellectual, and in some sense, kind of demographic or sociological you could say right like the size of what you call legacy jewish communities etc in, in in on the east coast of the u.s is very different than certainly in, in in vancouver um those phenomena take place differently at the same time i the the curbing of academic speech the repression of Palestine solidarity activity is certainly present in in Canada as well. Uh, there were a number of arrests for a, um, direct action that took place in uh, in Toronto recently. There's been a lot of um, victimization and repression of students speaking out for Palestine. Again, not on the scale, but I think the pattern is not uh, dissimilar. I think it's less so the case. I mean, I haven't physically been in the United Kingdom for for a while, but I think that's definitely less uh, the 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 case. Even though, of course, the UK government and including, of course, now uh, uh, grimly, the UK opposition, as in the the Labour Party, has has taken an extremely pro uh, Israel uh, line. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a number there's a number of elements and i think there's a combination and i think that's why it's it's a it's a significant moment too right if you think of in the us in particular the way that um this um identification of the the college campus the elite college campus right uh as the the site of um of dangerous, right, uh, um, uh, and and uh, and in kind of slanderous terms, right, like anti-Semitic activity, et cetera, et cetera, that's become very mainstream. If you think of, of course, um, the uh, the forcing of the uh, presidents of 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 Penn and, and and Harvard to resign, and that whole phenomenon, and I think is very significant for 
the following reason that um, something that's been happening, of course, for the past few years and which is central to the discussion around fascism in the U.S., which has been the whole phenomenon of uh, culture wars, especially articulated around education, of course, not just university, but secondary, indeed, elementary education in states like Florida and elsewhere, and the whole confected racist panic um, uh, around critical race theory or uh, the, the, the transphobic pendant to, to that. All of that um, has now linked up to um, a much more mainstream, in the case, of course, of Biden and the, the, the Democratic Party, much more kind of centrist and indeed even liberal, uh, culture war of its own, right? Which is the the a kind of um, uh, uh, culture war against against anti-Zionism in any stripe, right? Um, you know, including uh, uh, the students for justice in Palestine, including Jewish Voices for Peace, and so on and so forth, right? Which have kind of now been targeted as the as as a sort of ideological enemy and and threat. Now, what's I think really um, striking and I think consequential in this moment, and you can see this in the whole campaign against uh, Claudine Gay at Harvard, right, is that the people, even though this now has cover and is kind of basically sort of being tolerated or accepted or or enabled by a mainstream liberal public opinion, including, I think, the New York Times and, 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 and other venues, it's being uh, pushed and, and led by the same people who were crusading against, you know, CRT or um, uh, or trans rights and so on, you know, the the Christopher Rufos and all of their, you know, so-called think tanks and foundations and so on and so forth, right? So one of the things that's happened, I think this is quite specific to the United States, is that the the far right. <clears throat> the the organic intellectuals if we're you know going to besmirch such a term of trumpism and the like have quite intelligently i think or you know tactically intelligently been able de facto to uh integrate or incorporate a centrist democratic liberalism into this culture war against uh, the left and the supposed like, you know, kind of campus extremism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like they're kind of bugbears. They've been able to um, uh, articulate their own long-term kind of uh, pseudo-Gramscian project, right? Uh, with that kind of mainstream Democratic Party, liberal, pro-Israel at all cost, you know, uh, defense of Zionism, right? And I think that is really a, um, um, a, a significant phenomenon, right? It's also a significant phenomenon, you know, as one moves towards this fairly grotesque uh, uh, electoral campaign that we're going to see in the United States, right? Um, because uh, it's, I think it's really undercut the capacity for that kind of like mainstream liberalism to present itself as uh, um, 
you know, as a counter to or as an alternative to this kind of far right project, because they've, you know, this sort of been de facto, <laughs> you know, integrated into this uh, this culture war against the the left, right? And it's also a culture war against a, a left in which Palestine solidarity is very closely, you know, linked also in terms of student movements, et cetera, to uh, anti-racism, uh, the you know, the fact that, you know, so many of the students being suspended, victimized, et cetera, are women of color is not at all incidental and, you know, goes very well, you know, and that's also part of the reason why this, um, this kind of culture war is so effective for the far right, right? Because in some sense, by attacking Palestine solidarity is a kind of very economic uh, way of going about it, right? Because by attacking Palestine solidarity, you're also uh, able to attack, right? Um, uh, people organizing around uh, anti-racism, around LGBTQ plus issues and so on and so forth, right? It's uh, And to bring in the centrist onto your side, whether they like it or not, because they're so committed to the defense of Israel and of Zionism at any price, right? Uh, and and I think that, yeah, I think that to me is a is is something I wasn't quite expecting, you know, to 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 operate in that way. And I think it's it's made like mainstream uh, uh, liberalism, which of course has always been beset by all sorts of hypocrisies and contradictions, but extremely uh, weak in this uh, moment. And I think that weakness is is visible also in the flailing about and in the deeply unconvincing responses to, yeah, you know, even the most mild humanitarian calls for a ceasefire that involve no pro that don't even involve any like Palestine solidarity or any claims about the rights of Palestinian self-determination, you know, not to mention the right to resist, etc. Right. So the, the fact that that's now treated as like totally beyond the pale. Right. I mean, there was that statement by one of the White House spokespersons. Right. You know, calls for a ceasefire repugnant. It's like in what world is that, you know, like what, how can you, you know, how can you even put that forward? Right. Like, so I think. Yeah, I think it's it's I think it has led. I mean, you know, obviously the most significant thing is 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 the violence that's going on uh, against Palestinians and how one might stop it. And but I think it's also worth thinking about the 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 way this has also led to a, a, a real kind of ideological crisis for for Western liberalism, broadly speaking, or a further intensification or a crossing of certain thresholds where, where there's a kind of emperor has no closed moment when you're, when you're faced with this, uh, yeah, uh, a real moral bankruptcy and also just blatant, you know, open denial of just facts that everybody can, can, can see. Right. And uh, not only facts that people can see, but facts that, the Israeli state is affirming, you know, they're they're telling you data. This is what we are doing. Uh, we're doing it on purpose. We are targeting journalists. We are, you know, stopping food from going into like it's not it's not a secret. Right. And whilst instead the the officials of the U.S. state and much of the Democratic Party is instead just acting as though this is not taking place. Right. And I think that will have some very serious consequences. Thank you.
Thank you.